BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Thank you guys so much for coming to the Barbell Medicine Seminar, Sydney, 2024. We're here on our, what, six years later? Something like that, five years later? Six years. No, so, five. Was yeah. 2019? Five Long years. Time. Yeah, so thank you for coming out. Thank you for bearing the heat, although it is, it's fine right now. Uh, we're gonna do a Q&A. These are questions that you all have submitted uh, and Austin has curated. So Austin's the one to blame if we don't get to your specific question. We'll direct all hate mail towards him. We'll list his actual mailing address in the uh, description below, so you can pay him a personal visit should you ever come to the United States. That should be fine. Okay. Uh, and if you have to leave early, we understand. Thank you for coming. Also, make sure to get your certificate. Uh, Leah has them over there. Question number one. As just a personal trainer, I have a limited scope of practice and a perceived lack of authority on topics beyond basic training and nutrition. Do you have any advice on how to overcome this? In the absence of tertiary education, what continuing education should a personal trainer pursue to remain an effective coach? Yeah, I mean, I'll tackle the second part. How about that? Okay. What continuing education should somebody pursue? And I think that uh, for somebody who is functioning in the role uh, as a trainer, it can be tempting to pursue a lot of uh, continuing education from all sorts of resources that present a lot of new hot takes and sexy new information and things like that. I'm going to make the argument that much of this continuing education is probably not super necessary beyond focusing on the basic things that we have emphasized for you guys this weekend, for example. In other words, seeking out new sexy programming concepts or you know, advanced hormone testing things or some things like that that you can discuss, while that may seem attractive to try to be like on the cutting edge or something like that of things, um, given your scope and the area in which you have the most potential to make an impact, I think focusing on uh, getting better at the most critically important things, which we've laid out for you guys this weekend, starting yesterday morning with behavior change. Are you very good, very competent, very confident at having those kinds of challenging behavior change type conversations with your clients? Are you competent and confident in having conversations around sleep-related issues, around 
the basics of training management adherence, getting people to these physical activity guidelines and beyond. It's very likely that there's room for improvement in those areas that is likely to be more impactful uh, compared with, you know, going to some kind of, you know, one of these, uh, one of these uh, you know, personal trainer or, or uh, powerlifting focused conferences or something like that where they're talking about like hyper advanced recovery strategies or carbohydrate timing or various things like that. Um, so if you want like a organized framework of where should I put my emphasis uh, to get better at with respect to behavior change and focusing on with my clients, if you work with a population that's principally um, uh, interested in, in health, um, I would refer you to the article on our website, a seven health priorities article that Tom and I put together. Where would we put, where would we recommend everybody put their main emphasis when it comes to health related issues and get very, very, very competent and confident in discussing those issues, knowing those issues backwards and forwards and having relevant behavior change conversations as it relates to each of those things. Um, that's where I would put my emphasis instead of seeking out you know, every new podcast, every new hot take, every new piece of information, cutting edge research publications, because honestly, when it comes to general health promotion through the lens of personal training, things like that, there's not that much new stuff that you really need to know. Um, the, the, the basic principles of training have not changed radically in recent years, particularly as it relates to health, right? High level competition. Yeah, that kind of training stuff does evolve and change over time. But um, these other aspects, particularly if your population is general population, health focused, getting really good, as Jordan said yesterday morning, he's like, I think this is the most important concept in lecture of the weekend is behavior change. And getting really good at that would be where I would put my emphasis uh, instead of continuously seeking out new, 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 more, more, more. Yeah, I, I have a similar feeling as far as like, what do you do to help your help improve your skill set? Right? Because I think asking this question ha ha shows a great level of insight like oh i'm a personal trainer so here's where i think my scope stops and i feel uncomfortable because there's so much unknown out there and i think that shows a great deal of insight i mean even with advanced medical training and been do i've been doing this i've been coaching for like 15 years now i still have a lot of uncertainty out there so but having that sort of insight shows like a great deal of growth and and, and uh, maturity so as far as what to do about it, I think if you're doing it to improve your skill set, the in your appendix, those primary resources that we listed, I that would be my first go-to as far as like self-directed type learning. I would also consider seeking out additional either certifications or certificate programs that would increase your market share. Those would be basically my two like kind of buckets to put this in. Like one, is something gonna improve your fund of knowledge from a curiosity standpoint because it helps you answer questions that you have about your current sort of approach to individuals. So if you, you know, regularly talk about nutrition with folks and you don't know a lot about how to lower cholesterol or what sort of dietary patterns are associated with that, well, we got a lot of resources for you in that appendix. I don't know how many it's, a, it's over 100 citations for sure. There's a, lot, there's a lot to read there. Or if you're curious about current obesity management, that's in there too. Or current concepts and programming related to proximity to failure. That stuff's all in there too. So would, would read that. Outside of that, additional certifications or certificate programs I'd be seeking out would have to increase my market share or increase the amount of people who seek me out for coaching. In the United States, the only certification that I've had that's really garnered a lot of interest as far as people wanting to get coaching from me has been the uh, Titleist Performance Institute golfing certification. Now, the actual certification itself is not great, but you get listed on a registry that people regularly search and they have a lot of disposable income. 
quite nice from a business perspective. Also, it makes uh, you uh, able to talk the talk with golfers. But if you think about this, what kind of training do golfers actually need? If you consider that most golfers are not currently meeting the physical activity guideline recommendations, have not resistance trained consistently before, well, their first program is going to look a lot like everybody else's first program. Picking movements they want to do to train all the major muscle groups of the body in a wide variety of different rep ranges at RPEs 6 to 8 for most of the compound exercises and RPE 6 to 10 for some of the isolation exercises, do enough conditioning to improve their cardiorespiratory fitness until they get to a point where I'm, they're well trained enough that you feel like it's okay now to do some specialization. They don't need to focus on high velocity force production early on because everything's going to work for that. All right? They don't need to focus on throwing a med ball against the wall, rotational velocity, until they're actually strong enough to get more out of that than they would get from just training the squat type pattern, hinge type pattern, push type pattern, row type pattern with a barbell, dumbbell machines, something like that. So the certification as far as useful material, mm, no offense to Titleist Performance Institute, I think you guys are great and trying to do the right thing. I just don't know that the information in there is typically is very actionable, especially for a personal trainer. A lot of the stuff has to do with like swing mechanics, but you're not a swing coach. So it's like, what? Hmm, not sure what you're doing, but it could bring you more business. So that's kind of how I would go about selecting, should I get additional certi uh, certificates or certifications or certificate programs? But as far as actual fund of knowledge type stuff, uh, I think, the, again, the resources we listed would be good. And then, again, just to double up on Austin's point, getting better at behavior change would be probably the biggest difference maker in your practice. And some of that's going to be from actually doing it and refining your technique personally, but also engaging with other experts in the field. So uh, in your community, especially if you train folks in person, would try to develop relationships with not only physicians, but nutritionists, physios, athletic trainers, behaviorists. And that way, not only can you refer people, as appropriate, but also you can have conversations with them about specific questions you have, and these people in general are more than happy to talk about uh, things, especially if you're sending business their way, they'll send business your way. So all of that I think makes not only for a better business, um, but also a more uh, sort of complete uh, skill set. Yeah, and to the first part of this question where the person had this like perceived lack of authority and was wanting to know how to overcome it, I think the better you are able to get with having those conversations and establishing a relationship with a client, the more room they're going to be likely to give you and listen to you yep. on these things. You don't, you know, if you have, ter if you're terrible at having conversations with people, you can have an MD and be really bad at interacting with patients. Trust me, yep. I have seen these people. I have to train these people to get better at having conversations with people. They have the most terminal professional degree that should grant them a lot of authority, but the patient's like, mm, I don't trust that person, right? So just more authority for the sake of it is not necessarily going to get you what you are asking about, what you're looking for in here. At the same time, there are going to be highly experienced trainers who are fantastic at relating to people who may be able to earn that perception of authority and be able to you know, speak on things maybe a bit beyond basic training and nutrition if they feel comfortable doing it. Um, so, so I think that that's, again, coming back to this idea of how you relate to people and how, you're, how good you are at these conversations and then getting really good at the basics is probably where I would focus. Yeah, that's the that's, that's soundbite. Get good at the basic. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. 
Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. Yeah, I like that. All right, question number two. How would you reconcile treating people with obesity within the context of weight-based stigma? So to the way I understand this question is like, well, why are you treating an individual's obesity, trying to lower their weight, if you're trying to get away from weight-based stigma? Is that how you understand it? Yeah, I think so. Reasonable way to approach it. You want to start this off or you want to? Go first this time. Okay, fine. Fair enough. Um, I, I think first, when we're treating an individual with obesity, the kind of principal uh, uh, response from the individual has to be that they are desiring to lose weight. Like they have to be on board with this, right? So we're not prescribing or advising. People get prescribed these medications if they do not want to lose weight. Uh, while they may benefit from weight loss, their health trajectory may improve from losing body fat and, and, and by taking these medications. If they don't want to, that's a perfectly reasonable choice as well, provided they understand the risks and benefits. And I think as a healthcare provider, that would be your role to have that discussion with them and kind of explore why they're opposed to it. But ultimately, patient autonomy, I believe, is very important. As far as what you go from there, how you go from there, uh, if uh, somebody d does decide to engage in treatment and you don't want to be so weight-centric, which I think is a good aim, I think what you're trying to do is imp improve the person's health and improve the processes by which weight is ultimately managed. Healthy dietary pattern to include lots of lean protein, lots of fiber-containing foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, etc., at an energy intake level that supports a healthy body fat level. We're not focused on the number on the scale, we're focused on the process, the processes, and then what happens as a result of that is the body fat loss, okay? Uh, and there are a lot of weight-independent benefits that can happen from not only the dietary pattern change itself, but participating in exercise, and even from the medications themselves. Reduction in heart disease risk, diabetes risk, and I believe we're gonna find more and more uh, benefits as more and more data comes out. I just think that if you are engaged in discussions about these medications or are actively prescribing these medications and you're focused solely on the number on the scale, that's probably an error for a, a large swath of the population, though admittedly some folks will say, I wanna lose weight, and that is the important outcome to them. Still, I would be focusing on the processes and ultimately trying to improve health rather than to achieve a certain weight on the scale. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm uh, imagining two different scenarios when I'm uh, working with a, a new patient, for example, one for I just did this last week. I had a, a woman who who pursued a consultation, and her primary chief concern for that day was uh, struggles with her weight and wanting to uh, address that issue. So she was already coming in interested in pursuing weight loss. That makes the initiation of this conversation a bit easier. But my next step from there, when I'm taking this history, is basically taking a weight-related history. You know, tell me about your life as it relates to your experience with weight, weight gain, weight loss, what have you tried, what have you been through, what kind of experiences have you had, how has this impacted your life, right? And through that, I can learn a bit more about that person's experience, and a lot of struggles that they've had with weight-related stigma tend to come out in those conversations. When I'm asking them, tell me about your experience, and leaving that open-ended question, and then shutting up, and letting them go, right? And I learned a lot about this person, and it helps me better relate to them to understand their experience insofar as I even can. And then to, you know, it, it can modify the way I have conversations about how we're gonna approach things moving forward. That's one scenario. So recognizing, validating that person's experience and what they've been through, and that can then inform how I talk about this and what I end up prescribing subsequently. A more challenging situation is when the person is not coming in specifically interested in this, but as the 
healthcare professional recognizing that they are likely at elevated risk due to this and it is something that I would advise we try to do something about. But they maybe due to a long history of you know, suffering from issues related to weight related stigma, embarrassment, bad experiences with the healthcare system, whatever the case is, they are not wanting to bring it up or to address it during that visit. That can be a more challenging one to get your foot in the door. This requires some practice and, and tact to bring that up and essentially ultimately boils down to basically asking if it's okay that we discuss this from a medical standpoint. And then I would then, if it's okay, pivot into the same conversation, see if I can get them to tell me their history, their experiences, what, how this has affected them, things like that, and then work on it from there. And if they would prefer that we not discuss it at that time, that's okay, leave it alone and try again at another date. Or if they say, never talk to me about this again, <laughs> okay, I've done my duty in this kind of relationship. But trying to separate you know, the uh, whatever prior traumatic events or stigma related issues they've had from the purely kind of medical considerations that are at play here. And if I can get somebody to recognize that I have their best medical interest at heart and I'm not trying to perpetuate some of these negative experiences and stigmas around it, then I can get buy-in. How do I do that? Same thing as the prior question, getting really good at having these conversations, which takes practice, it takes experience, it takes screwing up, it takes you know, making mistakes, <laughs> offending people um, early on, unintentionally, you know, despite your best, this is all just part of the process of getting better at having these conversations. So um, I think that if you can get, build a good relationship with somebody and have them recognize that maybe you're different than other folks that they've talked to about this before, you're not judging them for this, um, you have their best medical interests at heart and that's where you're laying out these recommendations and coming up with a shared plan um, in recognition of their prior experience and what they've been through, then that's the best best path that, that I would advise yeah. uh, in this situation. And usually when you're prescribing these medications or having these conversations, yes, you're discussing body weight or body fat or both potentially, but the root of that conversation is health improvement. And so I think kind of shifting the conversation away from focusing just on weight loss, but as health promotion, that's consistent with their current goals. I think that's kind of how you move away from everything being focused around weight, which again may bring up some of those traumas that they've had previously. Yeah. All right. Question number three. We know that improved sleep duration and quality is typically helpful for overall health and well-being and contributes to the experience of pain if it's sleep deprived. Question. How would you explore the discussion slash scenario when a client is dealing with persisting pain, like back pain, that significantly impacts their sleep? Oh, so like they're having back pain and so they're getting poor sleep and the poor sleep is probably exacerbating mm -hmm. their back pain. Tough one. All right, start, kick it off. Sure. So there's a couple different considerations here. One is um, what is the nature of the back pain that the person's experiencing? And what I mean by that is this acute back pain meaning it's happened relatively recent onset, in which case it is very likely to have a favorable trajectory, favorable prognosis, and improve on its own with time, in which case, you know, I feel for you, this sucks, <laughs> I understand your sleep is impacted. There may be some things we can do about that, but in the bigger picture, I'm optimistic and can provide some reassurance that this is likely to improve with some time. Regular old general nonspecific low back pain, within a couple days to a couple weeks, the, mo the majority tends to start improving on its own spontaneously, in which case that'll improve, your sleep will improve, it'll start to positively snowball, and you'll get better. That's the, the case for most people. There are some causes of acute back pain that tend to have much more significant impacts on people's sleep, namely radicular pain, what people know of as sciatica, radiculopathy, when they have searing pain usually going down the back of the leg, that can be pretty excruciating. And even though even that tends to have a favorable prognosis, tends to improve on its own over the course of a few weeks to a few months, easier to tell somebody that than it is to live it, right? Really, really difficult. 
And so that's a scenario where depending on how much the person is impacted, as a from a clinician standpoint with prescribing power and authority, I might actually broach the topic of the use of medications to facilitate that because that is a lot of potential suffering in that situation that even though it is likely to improve on its own with time, I may be able to mitigate in the short term um, get, and get that person some amount of, of relief from that type of condition. The tougher one is the persistent back pain scenario, the long-term one where I'm a little bit less confident that this is likely to get better on its own over the course of a few weeks to a few months. I'm so curious about what we're doing to manage it, you know, who you're seeing, who you're working with, do I trust them, are they doing stuff that makes sense, or are they, you know, just doing, you know, acupuncture or something that I don't expect to do wait, anything wait, real for Wait, acupuncture doesn't work? It does not, in fact, work. Okay. Um, just for the record. And so I would want to ensure that what we're doing during the daytime to try to work on this is in line with best evidence and best practice for the management of, of persistent pain, because I want to give you the best shot you can during the day. And then at night, this is another scenario where I might entertain the possibility of the use of some medications to facilitate sleep. This is something that admittedly, if you're a physical therapist or you know a personal trainer or something, you have a little bit less of a scope to discuss those things, but rather to advise that, hey, if this is impacting you that badly, and I, we know that sleep is going to be important as part of you know this overall rehab process, maybe this is something you can talk with your, with your doctor about, and depending on your other medical conditions, your you know, kidney function, various other things that can come into play in terms of making decisions about what we're gonna prescribe you. We'll have a variety of different options that are obviously beyond, beyond our scope here, but that's actually a situation, you know, I don't tend to prescribe a lot of medicines for sleep, but uh, these are a few scenarios where I would actually entertain it, discuss it, lay out pros, cons, you know, uh, uh, for somebody as, as part of that broader process. But I wouldn't just do that, hey, knock yourself out at night with this and then keep doing the stuff that's not working during the day, right? It's a dual, you know, pronged approach here. It sounds like a holistic approach. Doctors are not known for holistic approaches. Yes. I by, only right? by non-doctors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have nothing to add to that. Because effectively, if the back pain is enough to affect somebody's sleep for a long period of time, uh, and you can't get a handle on it with any sort of lifestyle change, whether that be modifying the actual sleep environment, so cold, dark, quiet room, or whatever, good sleep hygiene, going to bed and getting out of bed at similar times, um, things of that nature, only but nothing but sleep and sex in bed. If none of those things improve somebody's sleep quality and quantity, and they're still suffering from, um, you know, persistent insomnia, while insomnia in and of itself has like a 90% lifetime prevalence in adults, people are going to have, in general, at least one experience acute, of that. Yeah, yeah, acute insomnia, right? But if it's persistent and we can't do anything with lifestyle change alone, and we think that it's affecting their low back pain sort of trajectory, in addition to dealing with the low back pain through uh, physical therapy, plus or minus additional interventions, plus or minus exercise modifications, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that might be a good case uh, for medication or and or discussion with a sleep medicine uh, uh, expert. And so for personal trainers, for physios, people who don't have prescribing power or, you know, would not be expected to have this sort of fund of knowledge of like, hey, do all of these things, bringing up or asking about sleep in the first place would be like, you get a gold star for that. Because if you're not talking about it, you don't know. You're already doing more than a lot of people. Correct. If you yes. even ask about pain, in the, uh, sleep in the context of pain-related issues. Yep, exactly. And then that might trigger, you know, the sort of referral to one of your friends in the community who happens to be a sleep expert or happens to be more knowledgeable. You're not responsible for knowing all that stuff. That'd be an impossible ask, I think.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.